Well, good morning. Let's get our seats and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. And let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word that you have revealed so much about yourself, that you have revealed so much about us. And as we've been studying this book, so much about the things that are to come. And there is a wrath to flee from, but there is also a savior to flee to. And we are so grateful for Jesus. We are grateful that you have made a way where we can be made right declared right, that we may be delivered, that you have redeemed us from the bondage of sin. And I pray that as we are looking, especially this week and next week, as, as we are looking at um, the judgment on the false religions of men, that you would stir in our hearts the desire to all the more cling to truth. Help us to see you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. And I suppose as we're coming to this chapter, it's probably good to take a moment and consider some of the things that we have seen in this book. Now, one of the things, and one of the, the issues that makes sometimes the book of Revelation more challenging to interpret and challenging to understand is how do we look at the different pictures? How do we look at the different symbols? How do we look at the different um, ways in which this revelation, this unfolding, this revealing of truth, how do we make sense of all of this? And so one of the things that we have seen in the book of Revelation is the use of symbols. Now I'm talking S-Y-M, not C-Y-M, the things that you crash together. So when we talk about symbols, why, <coughs> excuse me, why and how do symbols work? Okay, Sam, you've got a perplexed Look on your face. Okay, now Sam has brought up an outstanding point. When you're talking about a symbol, you're being given something that is an object and you have to understand what the object is in reality to be able to have an idea as to what it is representing as an idea or a concept. So the thing that when we, when we look at symbols, we have to realize that symbols relate to reality. There is something that is tangible with this symbol. Now, Sam, 
used a couple of examples or, or threw out some ideas. So for instance, if you were t talking about an eagle, if you were given the symbol is an eagle. Now, what are some things that you would need to understand in order to have an idea as to, okay, how does this apply to this particular situation? What can an eagle represent? I actually love that example on a, on a, on a number of levels. What can an eagle represent? Gunner. Romans and Germans used eagles in their parades. Okay, so John has to deal with the Romans and, and they're looking at what he's writing. Now that's zooming right into something like here, but step back for a moment. What can an eagle represent? Strength. Strength. Strength and power, because the eagle is a raptor, it is a predator. Okay, what else can an eagle represent? Freedom. Freedom, because? Okay. Free to fly. Free to fly. Okay. The symbol of our country. That's why I like the example on a number of levels. So when you talk about an eagle, there are a number of things that that eagle could potentially represent. Now, when you look at that, you, to going back to, to Sam's thing, you have to understand, okay, well, what is an eagle? Is an eagle, um, it's something that's real. So you can look at, you can recognize, and it has characteristics. Question? A symbol. A sim right. And so that's what we're talking about, is, is how, do, how do symbols work? Now, in Revelation, as we have been studying, what do we typically have after the use of a symbol. We have an explanation as to what the symbol means. And so it, it makes it easier for us to be able to put pieces together because God is telling us, here is what I am after. Now, why go through this today? Because we're running into a symbol today. Now, this symbol is perhaps a little different than some others that we have encountered in Revelation because this symbol is multifaceted. This one has got a number of ways in which it can be used, and in fact, that number of ways was intended by God. And so, as we're, as we're trying to go through, and, and I'll be honest, um, this week, there was a lot of reading. <laughs> there was, <laughs> there's a lot of issues that are dealt with, especially in this chapter. And so, as we, as we come across some of these things, 
there are going to be uh, some ideas, some ways of looking at this that on their face are going to make sense. And what we are charged with doing as students of God's word is, you know, determining what is it that God is intending to communicate. Because again, when it comes to understanding and interpreting scripture, who is the one who determines what the scripture means? Okay, now you are making my heart very happy right now because multiple of you are saying it's the author. God is the one who, who is making the decision here as to what this means, and that is absolutely correct. And in fact, that will save your bacon as you are going through and studying some of these things. So if God is the author and the author is the one who determines what it means and its meaning, then what do we want to use to interpret Scripture? The Scripture itself. And so again, we are going to find here that in the next, uh, today and especially next week, uh, chapter 18, there are multiple verses that are almost drawn verbatim from the Old Testament. And so here again, this is where we've, we're going to use Scripture to look at Scripture. So today, in fact, let's just, uh, let's just read verse 1 in chapter 17. Now you'll remember chapter 16 was the pouring out of the bowl judgments. This is the last round of judgments. We've had three series of judgments. Opening series is what? The seals. Thank you. The seals. So there are seven seals. The seventh seal leads into the next round of seven, which is the, the trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet leads into the third round, which is the the bowls. And so we've had these three rounds of judgments that are increasing in intensity. And in chapter 16, we've had all seven bowl judgments. And what is different about the bowls from the, from the seals or the trumpets? What is unique about the bowl judgments? Okay, they're all together. Unrestrained. Okay. So, the idea here is that when you get to the bowl judgments, that is the unmixed, undiluted judgment of God on unrepentant men. And so, the seals, there is restraint. God isn't dishing everything out in full mix. Even with the trumpets, when we see that there is something coming down and landing on the oceans. How much of the ocean was affected? A third. When we get into the bowl judgments, there's no more, no more fractions in the bowl judgments. Those are whole numbers. And it is, um, these are devastating judgments. And so 
in chapter 16, we've had those seven, and we've had the seventh bowl, which is a, uh, it's a cosmic event. You have an earthquake that shakes the entire planet so that you've got cities being leveled. You've got hailstones coming down that weigh a talent apiece. Anytime you start hearing things measured in a talent, um, you know, the, the, in the old world, you know what a talent basically was? As much as an adult man could carry reasonably. 75 to 100, 105 pounds. Now, it just imagine something that weighs 75 or 100 pounds coming down and landing on your noggin. You can understand why men are cursing because of the severity of this particular plague. So, chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. <coughs> Excuse me. So here we have one of the angels that has just been involved in pouring out these bowls of God's judgment. So there is a chronology here. As this last judgment has been carried out, now one of those angels comes over and says, I want to show you specifically one of the judgments that came from this last one. So let's look at the, let's back up a little bit in, in chapter 16. Go to verse, uh, go to verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, this, so now we're being introduced to someone here, and this is Babylon the great. Babylon the great is going to be the focus of chapters 17 and 18. So chapters 17 and 18 are an explanation of who Babylon the Great is and how does this judgment relate to Babylon the Great. So Babylon the Great, just step back for a second, Babylon the Great must be something of importance if two out of the 22 chapters in this book are going to be dedicated to the subject of Babylon the Great. So we need to be paying mind, right? Does that make sense? So, here the angel comes. I'm going to show you the destruction. I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot. Now, Babylon the Great, is the Bible familiar with Babylon? Okay, yes. How do we know that? 
Okay, so it existed. It was part of the Bible. Now, where do we run into most of our exposure to Babylon? Where do we run into that? Big picture, okay? New Testament or Old Testament? Old Testament. And so we go over here to the Old Testament, and where do we find, and just again, big picture, what was the relationship of Babylon to Israel in the Old Testament? Okay, they were a conqueror of Israel. And, and where did that happen? The exile. the exile. God used Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as the instrument of judgment on unrepentant Israel, right? And so we have Babylon actually coming to Israel three times. 605, 597, 586 B.C., and you've got things being carried away, people being carried away, and finally in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and what does he do with Jerusalem? What happens to the temple? And so the temple is destroyed, people are carried away, and you've got exile brought to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and to Benjamin. Now, where else do we see Babylon in the Old Testament? So you have this with Israel. Was Israel the only target of Babylon? And we're going to extend out a little bit, so we're going to find out how many of you have uh, paid attention to world history. Pardon me? Okay, so Babylon was geographically located. There was a city called Babylon, right? Okay, it is still there. Now, what is Babylon today? It's a ruin. And that's something that we probably need to remember. So Babylon, after it judged, after they were the instrument of judgment against Israel, Babylon was itself at one point what? They were judged. That was foretold, right? In fact, next week we're going to spend a lot of time with that because Jeremiah spent three chapters of his book talking about what God is going to do to Babylon. And so they were judged. And if you go back into the early centuries after Christ, you'll find that there were comments made about Babylon, that it was largely a desert that it was largely a place where you just would not go. That actually is going to be pertinent today as we look at this. And so Babylon was a, um, a pagan nation. They were used by God to accomplish his purposes, but they were also judged by God because they were wicked and they were pagan. Now, where does the word Babylon come from? Okay. The origin for Babylon is going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And that is going to be where the Tower of Babel was, that general region. What happened at the Tower of Babel? What happened there? In fact, you know what? I'm sorry, Andrew, go ahead. Yep. 
Right. So the, the earth ended up being scattered. Their languages were changed. It's where you end up getting all these different languages, at least the, the onset of that. Uh, let's turn our Bibles. To, uh, keep your finger in Revelation. We are going to end up back there. And go to Genesis chapter 11. Now, Genesis chapter 11, this is the nice thing about having our Bible in writing. Genesis chapter 11 is after Genesis chapter 6, right? Because 11 is chronologically after 6. What happened in chapter 6? That's the flood. You have the flood of Noah. So prior to chapter 6, we had creation. We have all of these people being born. But then we have something happen to where society has degraded so badly that the thoughts of men's heart are only evil continually. And that is intentionally, it is just compounding, compounding, compounding because man is wicked and God gets to the point where I'm going to judge them. And he sends a flood. But before he sends the flood, what does he do? He talks to Noah. Noah, build a boat. And it is a large boat. Can you, now, and again, back in the day when there was no such thing as a power tool. If you ever have a chance to go to Kentucky, to go through the ark, the ark exhibit that's there, with, uh, that was done by Ken Ham with Answers in Genesis, go. It is one of the most incredible things you're ever going to see. And one of the things that, when you look at the boat, this, this thing is so large. It's got exhibits in there. It's got all kinds of, of uh, animals that have been sculpted, and, and they're in here, and there's these huge pens and all of that. And the occupant load for that, and there's a big ramp that goes up to get from, from deck to deck. Three decks, right? Do you know what the occupant load? Fireman, right? I, I got to so this is a question. I actually asked this question when we were there. How many people can you legally have in here? After all the exhibits? 10,000 is the occupant load. Now, how many people were on board? Eight. Sounds to me like there's lots of room. So the, the beauty of that is, is that when you go in and you look at the size, that the ark is the largest wood frame building in the state of Kentucky. And probably for a bunch of states around it. The thing is huge. Did they use power tools? No. Well, they did. Oh, you, they had cranes. They had stuff. I mean, you can watch the pictures and you can see. And Noah didn't have any of that. You can see why it took him 120 years to build it. Yeah. <laughs> Sam is suggesting that the dinosaurs may have actually been used in the construction. And maybe so. I mean, who knows? The point behind all of that is that has all happened before you get to Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 10 is, the, is the, the list of the nations. And then you get into chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, 
Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, meaning confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what had been the instruction given to Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and their wives after they got out of the ark? What was the instruction that God gave to them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What are they doing? They're all in the same place. They're not spreading out. And in fact, you get the idea that, you know, we got wiped out. And so we need to make arrangements that that doesn't happen again. And so did you see that the focus there is not on God? Why are they building this tower? Because we're going to make for ourselves a name. We're going to make for ourselves. We are going to impose our will on God, not the other way around. That's the intention here. And so... God says, got an easy solution for this problem. Can you imagine? I, I think, hopefully I speak clearly enough that everybody in here can understand what it is that I'm saying. Can you imagine? And we can all understand each other, right? That would degrade pretty rapidly, wouldn't it? If all of a sudden, we all spoke different languages. And none of us understood any of the others. How many languages do you speak? How many? Eight. Okay. This guy could do it all by himself, right? He starts speaking one of these other languages and... It wouldn't be difficult, would it? So here you have the families are split. What is not split up? They now speak different languages, but what are they taking to their new language? They're taking their same attitudes of heart. That hasn't changed. I just can't communicate it the same way to you. But I'm leaving, and so here again, yeah, you've, you've uh, if you take the example of a, a glass, and you drop the glass on concrete, I'm good at that. 
what's likely going to happen to the glass when it hits the concrete? It's going to break. Now, what's going to happen if I stomp on it a few times? It's going to break more, right? The pieces are going to get a lot smaller. Hopefully, I'm wearing shoes so they're not going into my foot. But the point being, at the end of it, what's on the ground? Glass. It's the same stuff. And so that's what's happening with these people. Babel is the, the origin. That's the root where you have man organizing his concept, organizing and implementing his concept of God and how he's going to get along with God. Why is God so anti-religion? First off, is God anti-religion? Okay, Danny's response is not so long as it's directed to him. What is religion? Man's working toward God. So what? is inherent in religion. Okay. The reason that we're going down this road, all right, there's no way we're finishing this today. The reason we're taking the time to do this here, whenever you talk about religion, you inherently have a redefinition of who God is, that is automatic. It has to be, because the God of the Bible, has the God of the Bible defined worship? Yes, he has. Has the God of the Bible defined what is acceptable and unacceptable to him? Yes, he has. Has the God of the Bible prescribed a way by which man can be made right and the relationship with him restored. Yes, he has. That is defined by God, and it's defined by God because he is God. By definition, he is the creator. Therefore, he is the rightful owner. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who is all-knowing who is all wise. God is the one who has all the tools you need in order to figure out how that is to be done. Religion redefines God. Religion says that this God is this way and he will accept this. That is the nature of religion. So when you look at different religions, how is it in their religion that a man is made acceptable to God? The vast majority of them are going to substitute something that is going to make them okay in the eyes of God. And what are those? What is that? Works. Somehow, either by offering a particular sacrifice or by living in a particular way, living by a particular code, then that will, and again, in every one of them, 
every one of them. What else is present? There has to be a scale. Because what are they going for? When you have a religion that I need to do these things in order to appease this God, how do you, how is it that you're made acceptable? How is it that you know whether or not you're acceptable? There's got to be a scale. Is the scale leaning in my favor or not? You have to have all of those things. So why is God anti-religion? Yeah, he's God. Glory, worship, well, those belong to him, not to whatever else it is that you're going to substitute for me. And so, when you talk about all of these religions, all of them, they all substitute one thing or another for what God has established. This is right. This is the way things should be. And so man comes in and he makes a God in his own image and then figures out how it is that he's going to, um, to appease that God. That's why the destruction of the temple was so horrific for Jews. Because what happened at the temple? Okay, worship, sacrifices. When you, what was, okay, there was something that happened one day a year. What was that? Day of Atonement. If you don't have a temple, and, 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 and what happened on the Day of Atonement? There was something that could only happen one day a year. What, what, what was that? Right, the high priest, just the high priest, is able to go into the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant, and in between the wings of the cherubim, there was something there, and that something was the? The mercy seat, and the mercy seat represented what? The mercy seat represents the presence of God among men. So one day a year, the high priest is able to go into the presence of God in order to make atonement for the people. No temple, no holy of holies, no ark of the covenant, no presence of God. So how is it then for them? How are they able to fulfill, to carry out the instructions that God gave them for worship? They can't. So what did they do? they came up with substitutes. And how did they come up with the substitutes? 
Did they get them from God? No. So where did they come from? They made them up. They got them from someplace else. Now, that could have been them coming up with something. It could have been going over and getting something from their neighbors and how they worshiped their gods, perhaps. The fact is, though, they substituted something else. And they were counting on that something else to do the same thing. What's the problem? It can't. It doesn't matter how sincere. It doesn't matter how opulent. It doesn't matter how sophisticated. It doesn't matter how sacrificial. None of that stuff matters because you've substituted something else for God. Now, why go through all of that? Because Babylon becomes the root of false religion. Do you know that some of the gods, and by the way, do you know where those gods came from? So for instance, if you go to Babylon, you might run into a god called Ishtar. Well, where did Ishtar come from? Did you know that Ishtar has a backstory? A backstory. Yeah. What's a backstory? Yeah. Here is how Ishtar came to be. Really? And where did that come from? Somebody made it up. Where did Greek mythology come from? Yeah, you got a bunch of Greeks probably sitting around a bottle of ouzo. Hey, what do you think about this? How about so-and-so and so-and-so? They get together and they have so-and-so. And then so-and-so is going over here. That stuff is all made up. All of it. And you look at that and you go, okay. So Ishtar is, re is related to the god Tammuz. Now, Ishtar, you won't find in the Bible. You can search for that one. You're not going to find Ishtar. You can find Tammuz. You'll find Tammuz. Take a guess where you're going to find Tammuz. If you're going to look, where might you look to find Tammuz? Where would you start? Don't say the concordance, all right? Where would you start? I'm going to look in my Bible. Am I going to look in the New Testament or the Old Testament? I'll go old. Okay, Sam's so saying Kings or Chronicles. The, one that, the, the place that I'm thinking of in particular, you'll find it in Ezekiel. Because people are worshiping, and, and, and unfortunately, which people in Ezekiel would you think might be worshiping Tammuz? Yeah, that's Israelites. Yeah, and it's in the temple. Got any ideas why God might have destroyed the temple? 
Tammuz is related to another one that I think all of us would be familiar with, Baal. Now, where would we find Baal? Everywhere in the Old Testament. Everywhere. Those gods had their origin in Babylon. Or the, or the predecessors to Babylon from that neck of the woods. And so here you have Babylon is the representative for false religions. So when you hear now, when we get to Revelation, and we see this, this concept of Babylon the Great, this is one of the aspects of Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is the poster child for false religion. Does that make sense? Now, so here's what we're going to run into here in chapter 17 and 18. Babylon the Great is absolutely the, the mother, <laughs> Saddam Hussein, it's appropriate since he was in Iraq, Saddam Hussein was uh, uh, famous for a particular saying, right? You attack me, something is going to happen. An event is going to occur if you attack me. There is going to be the mother of all battles, right? Now, there might have been. I wasn't there to fight it. Unfortunately, he did not end up on the side which he anticipated, right? That is also prescient. Um, because everybody in this book, when they go to war against God, they've got their own idea how that war is going to go, and it's not going to be the way they thought. So here you have the idea that Babylon the Great is the epitome of false religion. Now that is not, so the symbol that we're going to see in chapter 17 focuses on this idea of false religion. That is not, again, Babylon, multifaceted. Because Babylon also represents other things. That we'll get to in chapter 18. All right? So, all of this stuff goes back to Genesis. Questions until now. Everybody good? Clear as mud? Okay. Okay, the, the question is, does Jeremiah use Babylon as a name for Israel? That is tickling something in my memory, but I can't come up with it. Um, now, all right, I'll leave this other because I think we're going to get into, we're going to get into some of that stuff. Okay, so come here. I'm going to show you the judgment of the harlot. Verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and seven horns. Stop. 
So the woman is sitting. So when you sit on something, what, what is happening? What's your relationship with the thing that you're sitting on? Okay, so you've got authority over it. What else? Very basic. You're being carried by it. You're being supported by it. That's the idea here. She's sitting on the beast. The beast is supporting her. It's a scarlet beast. Anything significant about scarlet? Anything significant about scarlet from the book of Revelation? Let's start there. Have we run into this idea before? What color is scarlet? It's red. Have we run into something that is red in this book before? Well, blood. Oh, lots of blood. Robe dipped in blood. We're going to hit that in chapter 19. Go back specifically. I'm thinking of one of the symbols that we've seen before in this book. What color? There was a red horse. What color is the dragon? Dragon is red. Who's the dragon? Satan. In the book of Revelation, you hear the word dragon, that is Satan. Dragon, Satan. Same thing. Now, scarlet can also be representative of something else. Scarlet, if you go back to Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verse 18, in verse 16 it starts, Come, let us reason together. Right? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be as crimson, right? So the idea here is that this, this, this scarlet color is related to sin. Now, in the first century, if you had scarlet clothing and you wore, you wore a scarlet blouse to worship. What are you communicating to the other people there that are worshiping as well? What was scarlet a, a representative of? I'm sorry? Not sin. Okay, royalty. Who was able to wear scarlet? Only rich people. So when you look at, for instance, uh, in the book of Acts, you have Lydia in, in Philippi. And Lydia is a purveyor of what? Purple. Who wore purple? The rich. The rich were the ones who wore purple and scarlet. And so, again, you've got all these things here that are kind of circling around here with the beast. So the beast is colored scarlet, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, have we seen this symbol used before in this book? Yes. Where was that? Okay, the beast that rose up out of the sea in chapter 13, verse 1. So keep your finger here. In my Bible, I'm flipping back one page. 
So chapter 13, the dragon standing on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. And on his horns were 10 diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. So blasphemous names, seven heads, 10 horns. We're tracking. The only thing missing in chapter 17 are the diadems. And frankly, they're not necessary. So for, for the purposes of what John is being shown. So we've seen the beast before. And as we go through, we realize that this guy is the one that literally is going to be called the beast. He's the antichrist. So in your notes, to distinguish some stuff, and I don't know if I did it absolutely consistently, but if you see the beast capitalized, I'm talking about the individual, the man, okay? Just to distinguish him. So, the beast is supporting the woman. She's sitting on the beast. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup. Stop right there. So how is she attired? Yeah, when you look at her, if you were to see someone like this walk in those doors back there, what, what does her attire scream? Say, look at me and screams money, opulence. You know, I've got everything, Gunner. Dress up day. <laughs> and so again, it, it, and I like the idea of look at me. Now, when you read that, does that bring anything to your mind biblically? New Testament in particular. Pardon me? The Pharisees, that would be one. One of the books that's actually close to the book of Revelation actually talks to women about this subject, right? Don't focus. That was Peter's comment to Christian women, right? Don't focus on the outward appearance. Don't just worry about the jewelry and the clothing and all of that. What is a Christian woman to focus on? Her inner character, right? Her godliness. Now, does that mean that, you know, dressing up is bad? No, it doesn't. But it does call into question, why are you dressing up? Right? If it's to draw attention to me, that's not for the purpose of worship and giving attention to God. So, the woman here just screams wealth. She's got it with her clothing. She's got it with her jewelry. She's holding a cup. And if you just look at the cup, what would you think about the cup? Wow. Made of gold. She's getting a workout just picking this thing up and down. Gold's heavy. 
What's the cup filled with? Oh, now here's where things aren't quite so nice, right? Because the cup is filled with abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. So when you looked at, for instance, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, you dress up the, outs, you dress up the outer part of the cup, but you don't wash out the inside and looks great from the outside and the inside is full of dead men's bones. By the way, what was the significance of telling the Pharisees that their inner cup was full of dead men's bones? They were defiled. They were ceremonially unclean. They were incapable of approaching God. Incapable. So the very things that they were thinking were making them, you know, better than everybody else are the very things that are separating them from God. So here you have this woman, opulent, and yet what she has, and what again, the idea of having it in the cup was the significance of that. What's she drinking? And since she's making the nations, we're going to get into this here in a bit, since she's making the nations drunk with the wine of her immorality, what's she doing with what's in the cup? That's what's being dispensed. That's what it is she has to offer to those who are going to ply her wares. They do, yeah. And on her forehead, a name was written. Stop there for a moment. Isn't it interesting that in this society, everybody's got something on their forehead? Everybody does. If you're one of the elect, what do you have on your forehead? You have the name of God on your forehead. If you are a follower, if you are a worshiper of the beast, what do you have on your forehead? You've got his name or his number on your forehead or on your hand. What does this woman have? Well, she's got a name on her forehead too. And this is what's written. Now, the NAS, I think, does not get this right. Because it says, on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Now, in the Greek, there is no article. The idea here, I think, is that this, this term mystery belongs to what's on her forehead. So, on her forehead, mystery. We'll come back to that in just a second. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So what kind of woman is being represented here? A prostitute. A whore. Someone who offers something that is supposed to be special, but offers for money to whoever's willing to pay. 
What is being prostituted? I'm sorry? Sold? Okay, I, I'm sorry, I didn't phrase that. I didn't phrase my question very well. What is being trafficked here? I'm sorry, say it louder. Abominations. This is something, again, what is it that the beast is, is seeking after and Satan is seeking after? In fact, by this point, they've already got it. Worship. They want, they demand that which belongs only to God. That's what they want. Because again, what, what does Satan want to be? Who does Satan want to be? He wants to be God. And if you're going to talk about it, he ain't wanting to be the Holy Spirit, and he has no interest in being Jesus. You'd have to be humble to be Jesus. And he has no interest in humility. That's not to say that God the Father is not humble, by the way. But who of the Godhead does Satan want to be? Oh, he wants to be the man. He wants to be the top dog. I will be like the most high. That's what he's after. So when you have this woman with this title on her forehead, is John trying to communicate a real woman? And by a real woman, I'm talking about one that would be sitting in a chair right here. Is that what John is trying to communicate here? No. So the woman is a what? She's a symbol. She's a picture. She's a picture of a truth that has its roots in what? In reality. Is there such a thing as a woman? Is there such a thing as a woman who's a prostitute? Is there such a thing as one who would be pawning off something as truth that is in fact an abomination? All of those things have roots in reality. That's what makes the symbol work. And so, she has this, Babylon the Great. So, by having this title, and keep in mind, this is in the first century. Where's Babylon? In what condition is Babylon in at this moment? With, for John, let me rephrase that, at that moment for John in the first century, what condition is Babylon in? It's destroyed, it's a desert. There's nothing there. And yet, here she's titled Babylon the Great. Something that is significant. Something that has purpose. Something that has a lot of power behind it. So again, this is a symbol. And the symbol is, it's those religions that are against God.
Now, questions to this point? We'll finish out the section. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So are we talking about parallel expressions of the same thing or do we actually have a distinction here? That's not a rhetorical question. Pardon me? Okay, so we have one here for the same. And this is one of these, this, this is actually an open question. The witnesses of Jesus and the saints, can those be the same? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. They can be. I mean, the New Testament is full of references to believers as saints. It's throughout. So it can absolutely be the same. Now, I think that there is a distinction here. And there's a reason for the distinction. Because just as the symbol is going back and tying into the Old Testament and bringing that forward here into the current time, so this is also showing that the persecution of believers by this woman has also extended back in time. Because when you talk about witnesses of Jesus, are those, do, uh, a witness of Jesus, would that incorporate directly people from the Old Testament? Okay, I have a yes and I have a no. Which is it? Okay. And I've got some questioning looks. And there's a reason for the questioning looks, right? Who did the Old Testament sacrifices point to? They pointed to Christ. Did the people in the Old Testament know that? No. We have the benefit of that, number one, because we're told, and number two, because the cross for us is in the rearview mirror. We can look back and we can see, oh, wait a minute now, all of these, all of these sacrifices are pointing to Jesus. So this is, it, by faith, by faith, which is demonstrated by me taking God at his word. So when God tells me, if I'm Abraham, and God tells me, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to take him up on this mountain, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. What did Abraham do? He took Isaac, and he went up on that mountain, and he laid him down, and he had the, the knife up, and the angel, had to, the angel had to fight him to keep him from bringing it down. In Hebrews, what are we told about Abraham's mindset in that moment. In Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham believed that God 
would raise him from the dead, even though that had never happened before in history at that moment. What was Abraham demonstrating? Faith. He took God at his word, and he obeyed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice and you laid your hand on the head of that offering, realizing that that animal is dying in your place to atone for your sin, that person was taking God at his word that that sin would be covered. It's pointing forward to Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice for sin offered once for all, right? So when you talk about witnesses of Jesus, that's New Testament and subsequent. Saints, that goes all the way back to the beginning. So I think what what he's getting at here is this is going all the way back and it shows that the persecution of the redeemed goes all the way back as well, okay? Questions to there. We're not gonna quite finish it, but we're almost 10 after. Okay, we'll pick up next week. Hold on to your handouts, and we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, the enemy of our souls goes all the way back to Genesis, and yet at the same time, you are eternal. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Satan had a beginning. He's going to have a bad ending in the lake of fire. Father, thank you that you have always conquered sin. You have always been superior. You've always been holy. You've always been different. But Lord, you've also never been threatened. All of the schemes of men All of the schemes of the evil one have never even approached being able to threaten you. You're that much higher than anything and anybody else. Father, thank you that you have made it possible for us to be redeemed. We thank you for Jesus and how he humbled himself, took on the form of man, and not a high and lofty man either. He became a servant, ultimately dying a criminal's death. The death that was due to me, due to each of us. And Lord Jesus, you took that on yourself willingly. But you raised from the dead because death had no hold on you. And you've arisen to the Father. You're seated at the right hand of God at this moment, waiting for all of the nations of the earth to be put as a footstool under your feet, all of your enemies. That day is coming. And Lord, how we long to see it. Help us to be your hands and your feet and your messengers in our day. And Lord, help us to know you aright, that we may worship you aright, and that we may obey you rightly. Thank you for being our redeemer. Thank you for being the almighty God. 
in Christ's name. Amen.